Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word this evening, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening, that we can come to study your word Come to understand that no matter what may be going on in our lives, whatever the circumstances may be, that we can set aside those uh, thoughts and distractions and that uh, your word will help us to focus and to uh, be have an attitude of emotional and mental stability as we focus upon the everlasting rock. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help teach us this evening as we study your word and come to understand our salvation and our justification uh, even more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, this is one of those nights when flexibility is in order. 15, 20 minutes before I came to class, I could not print my notes. Computer locked up. No computer, no notes. We're going to see if memory works tonight. So we're going to start just by way of review in Romans 4, but we won't be there long. So the main place we're headed is Genesis 15 to finish up what we were covering last time. So Romans chapter 4 is the chapter where Paul is illustrating Paul is illustrating the uh, principle from the Old Testament that justification comes from the grace of God, and it is by faith alone, and it's not on the basis of works. It is God's grace in, in operation. And so in chapter 4 of Romans, the focal point is on these two illustrations, one from Abraham, one from from, uh, David. He does this because he is following the principle laid down in the Mosaic Law that there there should be two or three witnesses of any any event. And so he's choosing two, uh, two absolute lines of evidence from the Old Testament, one from the Torah, and from written by Moses, and one from uh, one from the Psalms, written by David, who is also referred to in the Old Testament as as a prophet, even though he did not hold the office of prophet, and he was not considered to be a prophet like Nathan or Gad or Elijah or Elisha, but he had uh, he had the gift uh, gift of prophecy. And so these are the two uh, focal points of this chapter, these two two Old Testament citations. In Romans 4.3, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, if you look at your Bible, 
you have a four at the beginning of verse two and a four at the beginning of verse three. And these both represent the same word in Greek, but they're used with a slightly different sense. Verse one begins with a, with a somewhat rhetorical question. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, found according to the flesh? That is, according to, uh, his, his physical life. For if, and so the for in verse 2 is explanatory, and it sets up a uh, uh, condition there, if Abraham was justified by works, and it is a first-class condition there because he's he's setting it up like a debater, he's setting forth your first premise as if it were true. It's not true. Sometimes when people have learned about the different conditions in Greek, they think that first-class condition means if, and it's true, but it doesn't mean that. It means if, and the writer or, or speaker is assuming it's true. It may not be true. And here it is, it's not true that Abraham was justified by works, but it is assumed to be true for the sake of argument. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. And then he uses that same Greek word gar again, which is translated for at the beginning of verse 3, but here it is used in a much more argumentative sense. And I don't use the word argument here in the sense of two people getting in a disagreement with each other. I'm using it in a technical legal sense as a uh, lawyer, a defense attorney, a prosecutor in the courtroom is marshalling or summarizing his evidence to make a point. He sets forth an argument driving toward his conclusion. And so the for here is used in this kind of an argumentative sense in order to uh, set up or to present the first line of evidence, which comes from Genesis 15.6, and Paul quotes it here from the Septuagint, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, so last time we went back to Genesis 15.6, so you, let's turn back there, Genesis 15.6, to look at the context. Now, there are, as I pointed out last time, there are a number of theologians and scholars and exegetes who uh, take the position that verse 6 of Genesis 15 flows from or follows from the promise that God makes to Abraham regarding the fact that his descendants, this promise that God has made that his descendants, his seed, will be more numerous than the stars of the heaven and the sands of the, uh, of the seas, that this promise is what Abraham is believing in verse 6. But that really isn't the case because what happens in verse 6 is is a summary statement that Abraham had already believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. Now, that, this can't be the time when Abraham receives the imputation of righteousness because he has already been given the uh, Abrahamic covenant even though the formal ceremony isn't set forth until uh, verse 7 and following of this chapter. But in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God's already made the promise to him. He's reiterated the land promise in Genesis 12, 7. 
He's reiterated again at the end of Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14. These promises get restated again and again by God. They're, they're just not formalized in a formal covenant ceremony until the last part of Genesis chapter 15. So it, it, this cannot be when Abraham uh, is justified. Furthermore, the grammar, as I pointed out last time, the grammar of this passage is very different from that which surrounds it. In the uh, verses before, you have a, a standard Hebrew narrative construction, which every, uh, it, it, one of the reasons that when you start off in beginning Hebrew, you read Genesis and other narrative literature is because it's very simple type of Hebrew. And the way it is written wouldn't be good English. And this happened, and he said, and he said, and they did this, and they did that. It almost always begins with the Hebrew Vav, which is the called the Vav consecutive, which is the and. That's not how we write in English, but that's how they wrote in Hebrew. And it would be followed by a, usually a verb in the imperfect tense, but suddenly, when, when you want to change and, and, and get out of the flow of events and break that pattern, then you change from an imperfect tense verb to a perfect tense verb. And what that means is that now all of a sudden that this new structure of, a, of, a conjun- of the conjunction plus a perfect tense verb throws, you, throws that verse into a different time frame. And, and the, the sense of the perfect uh, tense has to do with completed completed action. And we think of tenses in English as being a time-oriented thing. Present tense is now, in the present time, and we think of uh, past tense as that which happened prior, and future tense is that which happens in the future. And so when we think of present, in t- present future, past, we think of the idea of tense in English, it's time-oriented. But in many languages, tense has nothing to do with time. It has to do with what, they, what grammarians call the aspect of the action. And in Greek, you have both at play. You have in some moods, you have time uh, present, but in most of the moods, it has nothing to do with time. It has to do with whether you're looking at the action as a summary, which is an aorist tense, or whether you're looking at it as continuous action, which would be present tense or imperfect tense, or whether you're looking at it as completed action. In Hebrew, time is almost not present. It's almost completely absent in their verb structure. So that a, a an imperfect tense represents ongoing action, and a perfect tense indicates completed action. So when you have this kind of a structure... With the evolved uh, plus perfect tense, it indicates completed action. And because it's out of order, out of sync with the flow of, this, of the events here, it t- tells us that verse 6 isn't giving us, uh, isn't describing something that happens as a result of verses 4 and 5, but it is taking us out of this flow of events and reminding us of something that had already taken place, that Abraham had already believed in the Lord, and it was already accounted to him as righteousness. And the perfect tense 
has the idea, uh, and when, when it's used, can either emphasize the fact that it's past and it was completed in the past, or it can be emphasizing the present ongoing results from a completed past action. And that's how I believe it's being used here, is it's emphasizing that this is present results of a continue, of a, of an action that was in the past. So Abraham is still believing God. Uh, he still has imputed righteousness from that f- completed event that occurred in the past. And so the reader is being reminded of this. And this time frame when Abraham believed God had to have preceded the events even of Genesis chapter 12. If you just turn back a couple of pages to Genesis 12, where we're first introduced to Abram, God says to him, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. You are to be a blessing. It's a a command there. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse harshly those who treat you with disrespect, uh, different words for curse there. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, when you look at this promise from God, this is not given to Abram as an unbeliever, but to Abram as a believer. God is giving him a reward for faithful service. One reason we know that is if verse 6 of chapter 15 is parenthetical, the next thing that is said is verse 7. Then he, that is God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. God is reminding Abram at this point of what had occurred in Genesis 12:1. And so this this shows that the event of verse 6 goes back to an earlier time and precedes God's bringing Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. So it, it is a, a time frame from verse 6 that goes back to the time when Abram was originally, a, originally became a believer, which we don't know when that was. There's some Jewish tradition it was when he was around 50, but it could have been much, much earlier. Uh, it's just it's, it's uncertain. We do know that by the time he's 75, by the time we have the beginning of verse 12, He's clearly a believer, and he's already justified. So the first word we looked at last time was that word believe, not only the grammar, which I just explained, but also uh, the, the sense of the word. It's a hifil of a, a, aman, the verb, and in that stem, it has that idea of belief or faith or trust in something. The root core meaning I pointed out last time is the word for doorposts, and it's used that way in the episode where uh, in Second uh, Kings when Hezekiah takes the gold off of the doors and the foundation stone, literally, of the, of the temple door. And those foundation stones were enormous. And the, word, the a form of the word for Amman was used to describe those foundation stones because it's emphasizing the concept of stability and something that is immovable. And so the idea of faith has this idea at its core of certainty, of confidence, of, uh, of something that is assured beyond any shadow of a doubt. It is un- unshakable. So that is what belief is. It is that unshakable trust in the Lord, even if it's unshakable trust like a mustard seed. 
The second word, hashab, he accounted it or imputed it to him for righteousness. And I pointed out from uh, various passages, one, I believe it was Exodus 2.6, that, that has a very similar construction. And he accounted it, and the it there is a feminine singular suffix that must relate to a feminine noun. Righteousness is a feminine noun, setic. So it, it should be translated, he accounted it, comma, righteousness, comma, to him. It is an appositional type of construction. So it, it, by stating it that way, he accounted it, righteousness, to Abraham. It emphasizes, uh, so there's sort of a double emphasis there on what is given to, to Abraham. Now, Abraham receives and is given this righteousness. Now, think a minute about the structure here because this is what Paul's going to appeal to. Abraham is called somewhere around 2100 B.C. We don't know exactly what the date was. We can put things together, and there, as I've taught you so many times before, there's a lot of, uh, lot of debate over how to handle the chronology in the Old Testament, and even the standard traditional conservative chronologies are being challenged by uh, various uh, conservatives, all of whom take the numbers to be fully inspired in the scriptures, but in trying to correlate these events with, with uh, uh, extra-biblical events, we run, we've run into some problems. And there, uh, there are a number of conservatives who are working on these issues, and they tend to push things back maybe as much as 150 to 200 years. I don't want you to get the idea that somehow they're discovering thousands of years here. No, they're just... We're, we're talking about small triple-digit numbers, maybe a century or two extra but than, than the traditional chronology uh, between the flood and the exodus. I've even seen some conservatives who put the exodus as far back as as the um, uh, first century, let me see about, no, not the first century, the first decade or two in the 1500s, almost 80 years prior to the uh, the time we uh, we normally assign to it, which is 1446. Now somebody's going to say, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute." Over in First Kings, it says that uh, 420 years before uh, Solomon dedicated the temple, you had the Exodus. Yes, but in their reconstructions, the dedication of the temple isn't the traditional date of 970. They move that to about 10 uh, something. So they're messing with all the all the dates. Uh, so we don't know exactly when this was, but it's somewhere around 2100 B.C. Now, the Mosaic Law isn't given until when? Approximately 1400 B.C., 1404 B.C., when God gives it to, to uh, or excuse me, at 1445 B.C., 46 is the Exodus, 1445 would be when they're at Mount Sinai. And it's not written, uh, the, the Torah isn't then finalized until about 1404, 1405, just before uh, the Israelites go into the land. And at that time, Moses uh, is taken to be with the Lord. Now, it's the, the Mosaic Law sets down certain legal, moral, ethical, spiritual parameters about sacrifices and other things, but certainly can't be the basis of justification because Abraham was justified some five, six, seven hundred years before the law was given. Circumcision isn't required 
of Abraham until later on in this chapter as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So circumcision certainly isn't the basis for his justification. So Abraham, who precedes the law, can't be justified on the basis of the law, and Abraham hasn't been circumcised yet, so that can't be the basis of his justification. Paul will argue that his justification then is based solely on the fact that he believed or trusted in God. Now, in Judaism and in the teaching of the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, they taught that Abraham's justification here was based on the fact that even though the law had not been given yet, Abraham completely fulfilled the law. And so he was justified on that basis. So the question, how in the world did he even know what the law was to, to obey it? it? It really becomes a, a, this is the same problem that you have in Roman Catholic theology. You have a written text, and then there's a belief that there is a second oral tradition that got passed down, and this oral tradition then is the basis for their interpretation. Well, who made that up, and where's that authority? I mean, where did that come from? I mean, that's the problem. Is it, it's any kind of an oral tradition that is separate from the text that is then used to judge the text suddenly becomes uh, a false basis for authority because no one can no one can validate it. So the classic example here is, uh, and, and for the use of the word uh, imputation in the Old Testament, is in Genesis fifteen six. Now let's turn back to Romans Romans four. We'll be back in the Old Testament before long, so don't get too comfortable. Romans 4, 3, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? His authority is the Word of God. That is the only authority in our lives. We always have to ask the question, what does the Scripture say? And does something fit the Scripture? That's always our authority. Don't say, well, you know, that, that kind of fits the Scripture. You hear people do that all the time. Or that seems to be biblical. What is it that makes, why is something called biblical? That's an important question to think about. You, you look at something. I'll hear somebody who reads a book, uh, usually some kind of psych- psychology or something like that, or they will read something in terms of economics, or they will read something in terms of politics or philosophy of life or something. They'll say, well, that was biblical. Well, what do we mean by biblical? That should mean, and historically it's meant, that it is derived from the Scriptures, not that somehow it has similarities to the Bible, because the similarities to the Bible are great. There were a lot of things that, the serpent said to Eve that were similar to what God said. It was the things that he didn't say that were the problem that messed up the similarities. That's the, that's the issue, is just because something utilizes some biblical principles doesn't mean it's biblical, because there are other things that are part of the, the mosaic in any philosophy or any view of economics or any view of, uh, of, uh, of life that doesn't come from the Bible. And it's it's not what's said that's right that gets us in trouble. It's what's said that's wrong that gets us in trouble. And we all have a tendency to be selective readers and hearers, every one of us. And we sit down, we hear somebody, and they say a lot of good things, especially if it's somebody who is 
critiquing something, some politician, some political view, some economic view, some legal view, whatever it may be, somebody's saying, this is a real problem, and we're saying, yes, you're right. I wish, I've been waiting for somebody to say that's a problem. And immediately we get sucked in. Because just because somebody can identify the problem correctly doesn't mean they have any better of a solution. And there are many people who get sucked in because they finally found somebody who understands the problem, but they still don't have a right solution. So we have to, we have to think about the solution, and, and it has to not just be similar to Scripture, but it has to come from Scripture. So Paul says, what does the Scripture say? And he goes right to the quote from Genesis 15.6. Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then in verse 4 and verse 5, now in my Bible they, they make a paragraph break between 4 and 5, which I don't think is, is correct. I think 5 is a reverse statement of 4, and the two verses have to go together. Verse 4, he, he, Paul, Paul sets up an illustration, now to him... Him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work. See, on the one hand, you have the one who works, and on the other hand, the one who doesn't work. See, I, I, those two concepts have to go together. Uh, you're, 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 he's giving an illustration on the one hand, and then on the other hand, but in, in, in this Bible I have here, they break it between the two. And I don't think that, that, that breaks the, the, you lose the continuity of what he's saying here. On the one hand, you have a person who works. He puts forth effort. And the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now in this, and then in verse 5 it says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now let's do a little exegesis here. To him who works is a, uh, I believe it's a present, uh, present middle passive participle from ergodzomai, which is actually a deponent verb, which means it has an active meaning even though it has a middle passive form. Sometimes I throw things like that out, not because I think you, you really understand it, but I, every now and then, like last week, I got a, I got an email about 11.30 at night that said, how come... In one interlinear, it says it's a middle voice, and then in another interlinear, it says it's a passive voice. The answer was that there's only one form for middle or passive. They're identical, so you have to judge it from the context. Um, So every now and then I have to uh, throw little goodies out there for those who are trying to apply this to the Greek that they know. It's a uh, middle passive, but there's that, that it's a form of a word that always has an active meaning. The active form dropped out of usage, and so it just has a, has a uh, passive form. Now, to him who works, the one who works, and it just ere gods am I. It's just a basic word for, for working, laboring, the one who does something. And then it says the wages are not counted as great, but grace, but as debt. Now, the wages is a Greek word, misthos, M-I-S-T-H-O-S, misthos, that indicates it can mean reward, it can mean punishment, it can mean recompense, 
It has the idea of, of giving someone what is due on the basis of what they have done. So they've done something that calls for a certain recompense or a certain reward or punishment. So they've done one thing, and that's why they should get something else. So in this situation, if someone who labors and they then earn something, and this is considered not grace, it's not something that's a gift, but it is something that is owed. Aphelema is the Greek word here, and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean uh, necessarily debt, although it has that idea. It really has the idea of that which is something under obligation, something which is obligated to be paid, something which um, uh, is owed is the idea. So you work for eight hours and you're paid $20 an hour, then you should be paid $160 for your, uh, for your labor. So it's something you've earned by way of your effort. It's not a gift. Grace has the idea of something that is is unmerited favor, and it's done without expecting anything in return. And this idea within the Greek word of charis goes all the way back to Aristotle, that grace means to do something without any expectation of return or any expectation of re- response. You just do it because it's the right thing to do, because it's a good thing to do and because it's the kind thing to do for someone. So grace is something that is unearned or undeserved by definition. And it's amazing how many people have lost that sense of grace because in many Christian denominations and all other world religions, the favor from God is always given on the basis of what people do. They have to get enough brownie points. They have to do enough things, observe enough things, uh, participate in enough rituals so that God will ultimately give them favor. And so that is really something that is earned. And I've had people say to me, you're really earning a lot of grace. You know, just like fingernails on a chalkboard. How in the world can you, can you do it? But this is where we are. Satan attacks vocabulary and the truth gets distorted because as vocabulary, the meaning of words gets lost, then the concepts and the doctrines get distorted. So the wages are something that are earned, therefore they're not grace. And that's a key point. Grace means no expectation of return. Grace means it's unearned and unmerited. Now I want to point something else out to you that's really interesting coming out of the next verse. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Now, what do we see there? We see Paul making a very strong contrast between work and faith, work and believing or trusting in God. Now, in John chapter 3, verse 36, this is a... um, Oh, that's not the verse I was looking for. See, this is what happens when I lose my notes. I have to find, look for something. Uh, we look at a verse. I'll come up with one later. Um, we look at certain verses where it talks about, and John has one. I just can't remember where it was right now, that... <sighs> 
the, the one who believes is the one who does what the Father says, and the idea of work is our, our obedience or doing something is there. And every now and then you get pinhead theologians who get all wrapped around the axle over the idea that, that see in this passage where it says the one who believes works, that, 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 that belief is also a work. Or, or you do something. Yes, you do something. You believe that's doing something, but it's not meritorious. And, and this is the critical passage to show that difference, where Paul says, to him who does not work, in other words, he's not trying to acquire merit by what they do, by their ritual, by their morality, by their spirituality. They're not trying to somehow gain something from God uh, through their own uh, meritorious efforts. So he said, the one who does not work but believes on him. See, that's the contrast. Belief is clearly contrasted by Paul with work, with doing something. And it's because faith has to be understood as something that is non-meritorious. It doesn't have any value in and of itself. The value has to do with the object of faith, what one is believing, not not. Uh, the act of believing itself. Now, within uh, several forms of Calvinism, faith is viewed as a gift, that, the kind, that there's a difference between everyday faith and saving faith. And so if you're going to be saved, you have to have the right kind of faith. That's especially true in forms of lordship salvation, that if you don't have saving faith, then then you won't have the right kind of works to validate your faith. And the passage they usually go to for that is in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, where Jesus uh, has done many miracles. He comes to Jerusalem for the first time after he's begun his public ministry. And while he's in Jerusalem, he performs many miracles. And it says, many believed on his name. And then in the next verse it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And you'll hear lordship types say, see, if they were real believers, Jesus would have trusted them. Well, I don't know about y'all, but I don't just trust somebody because they're a Christian. There are a lot of Christians that I know that aren't very trustworthy. Some of them are in political office. Some of them uh, are in business. Um, And one of the toughest things to deal with if you're trying to witness to people is if they have been defrauded by a, a an unscrupulous Christian businessman. And there are many people like that, and they think that their morality, therefore, is much better than the morality of of this of Christians because of this particular kind of uh, uh, of incident. And so uh, John chapter 2 is completely distorted by people because Jesus understands that even though they, they may have believed and accepted him as Messiah, they haven't learned enough yet to recognize that he's not coming to establish a political kingdom and he's not going to entrust himself to them because they still have a political agenda for him and not a soteriological agenda for him and he's not going to get sucked into their agenda. It has nothing to do with whether or not they're saved. In those verses in John chapter 2 where it says, that, that many believed on his name, you have the verb pistuo, which is used 97, depending on the text, 97 or 98 times in the Gospel of John, and it's always followed by a prepositional uh, phrase with the preposition ace, believe on his name or toward his name. 
uh, believing in Jesus, uh, believing in Christ, believing in him. Pistuo, ace, is used uh, all through the Gospel of John to express the condition for salvation, and like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, pistuo ace, will have everlasting life. Well, that's the same thing that the people in John 2 did. They believed in him, pistuo ace. So if that doesn't get them saved, then how can we be sure how anybody's saved? This is a problem with, with, with lordship salvation. And so they, they want to bring... Uh, a second kind of faith in, and they will say, John MacArthur, who is one of the most widely known proponents of lordship salvation, says you can have a faith in Jesus that doesn't save. Really? That's all it says in my Bible. And so, but because they're they're saying that the kind of faith that saves is one that's a gift of God, so you also mistranslate, misunderstand, or misinterpret Ephesians. Uh, 289, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And the that in the Greek is a neuter plural, or a neuter singular, rather, neuter pronoun. And grace and faith uh, are both uh, are both feminine nouns. And so there's a lot of debate over that, but what it is that that refers to the whole idea, the whole phrase before it says that salvation by grace through faith is not of ourselves. It, that whole salvation by faith through grace thing, is the gift of God and not of works, not from the source of works. So this is the same thing that Paul says here in verse 5. To him who does not work, but instead believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Now here he uses a different preposition than the uh, formula that the uh, uh, Apostle John uses in the Gospel of John, here he uses a preposition, epi, which means in some cases to put something upon something, and in some cases it almost has the idea of resting on something, uh, placing something on top of something. Somebody standing on the sand of the seashore is one example. And, uh, and so the idea there is you're putting your faith upon, you're resting it upon uh, him, that is God the Father who justifies the ungodly. He is the one who declares the ungodly to be just. Now, what does that word ungodly mean? It, ungodly is one of those words that has come into English, popular English Christian vocabulary where we don't use it the way the Bible does. We look at some Christian and they do something, look at that ungodly wretch, you look at that ungodly behavior. The term ungodly is used in Scripture to refer to unbelievers exclusively. It is a technical term for unbelievers. Right here, We see it right here. He justifies who? The ungodly. The godly are justified. They don't need to be justified. It's the unsaved who need to be justified. And so the term ungodly is a term that is equivalent to unbelievers. Uh, God is the one who justifies the ungodly. We see it again a little further down in the chapter. I believe it's down in verse uh, 10 or 11, 12. I don't see it, but I know it's, I know it's there. Um, somewhere later down in the chapter, it talks about Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 6 of chapter 5, rather. 
5, 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. Now, one of the things that I'm doing to stimulate your curiosity is that last week I started coming down here during the week and filming a, a, a series on the, on, um, on the epistle of Jude. And this is what we're going to show when I'm out of town, when I go to Kiev in January on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. There will be a brand new series for everybody to come and watch on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, all new material. And the word asabes, which is the word for ungodly that's used in uh, Romans 5, uh, Four and Romans five is used uh, twice in in the uh, in Jude, and it's re- really important to understand that because if ungodly can refer to carnal believers, then you end up having some real theological problems, especially when you get into Jude. The term ungodly always refers to unbelievers. There's one time when there's a passage that talks about uh, it's in Second Peter. I think it's in Second Peter 2, 5, and 6, that's talking about the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the present-day false teachers that Peter's warning about who are practicing the ungodly behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he, the way that, uh, what that means is they're living like unbelievers. They're acting and behaving like unbelievers. That's the behavior in that passage of unbelievers. But all the, all the other passages are pretty clear, like Romans 5, 6, that Christ died for the ungodly, for those who are unsaved. So in 4, 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. There's nothing about them that is uh, that renders them savable. There's nothing good there. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our works of righteousness, of righteousness are filthy rags. So God justifies the ungodly. It is faith, his faith, that is accounted or reckoned or ascribed for righteousness. And then in verse 6, we shift to the second example which comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So here the focal point shifts. He said it's, it's about the blessedness of the one to whom God imputes righteousness. Now that word blessedness, the Greek word is uh, makarios, and uh, that word doesn't really mean happiness. Sometimes that's been translated that way. It has to, uh, the blessed person is the person who has experienced the unmerited favor of God. You know, when we look at somebody and their life seems to be going well, and we say, and 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 we say they're really blessed by God. They've experienced the unmerited favor of God. So it is a word that expresses that is related to to the application of grace. So verse six, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And so verses, verse 7 and verse 8 are taken directly out of the first two verses of Psalm 32. Now hold your place here and let's go back, turn back in the Old Testament to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a 
one of those psalms they call penitential psalms. It's a psalm of forgiveness where David is expressing his joy at the fact that God has forgiven him for his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is the psalm of confession. Psalm 32 is where he expresses his joy over having been forgiven. And he says in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. This is the Hebrew word barach here. Not barach is in the name of either our president or uh, the foreign minister. I think he's a foreign minister. A, a former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. That's a B-A-R-A-K. And in Arabic and Hebrew and Semitic languages, that refers to lightning. B-A-R-A-C-H, like in the Valley of Blessing, Baracha. That is, that's the word that is here. Blessed is he whose transgression, Pisha, which means a violation of the law, uh, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Now, the word here that's used for tr- uh, forgiven is a Hebrew word, nasa, N-A-S-A, and then uh, uh, just a uh, glottal stop. Uh, whose transgression is forgiven. The, it's, this is an interesting metaphorical use of this word. The, the, the noun is masa, which refers to a physical burden. The physical, it's used many, many times to refer to the physical burden you put on a camel, you put on a mule, you, you, you're carrying on your back. It is a physical burden. But then it comes to refer to an emotional burden. That, uh, in fact, Moses is complaining a little bit about the Exodus generation. So you are a burden to me in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. So the, the dealing with all their problems in that Exodus generation was a, a problem for, for Moses. That's a burden. There's other passages that talk about the burden of guilt, that feeling guilty for your sins, the not experiencing the forgiveness of God is a burden. It's like having a heavy load on our back. And forgiveness, nasa, is God removing the burden of that guilt from us. And so it came to re- mean forgiveness and the removal of the burden. Very similar background to the word for forgiveness that Paul uses in, in Romans uh, 4, uh, Afiemi, for forgiveness, for the canceling of a debt, the removal of, of a uh, problem. So, David says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, this is another word that is used, kasa, K-A-S-A, for covering. It normally refers to the cover over something, like you would put a cover on your bed, that kind of a cover. But in a few places, it's used, like here, in parallelism with uh, with uh, forgiveness. So, it has that idea, but in but only in poetry. This is another important point to make, is that words don't mean the same thing in poetry that they do in the Torah. By that I mean that the Torah is law or legal literature. And if you're writing a legal contract, a word in a legal contract has a tighter range of meaning. It's going to have a more technical range of meaning than it will in poetry. 
when you're writing in poetry, words have, uh, there's, we use the phrase poetic license. They're not as rigid in their meaning because the writer is looking for words that has similar sound or similar uh, cadence to fit in there uh, that has a similar idea, and it's so it will fit. So we, we give writers of poetry a, a, a little more freedom of movement. So when you're doing word studies in, in the scriptures, it's important to look at the kind of literature where the word is being used. And I like to make this point because every now and then when somebody uh, somebody reads a hymn and they'll read a word and they'll say, that just doesn't sound quite right. It, it wouldn't be right if we're in Romans, but it's fine if we're in the Psalms. We're singing a hymn that's poetry, and poetry uses more figures of speech. It uses a lot more similes and metaphors and other figures, and words are used that in a less rigid way than they are in legal literature. Just think about it. You're going to read a real estate contract quite a bit differently than you're going to read a Shakespearean sonnet. You're not going to expect the words to have the exact same kind of meaning as because they're different kinds of literature. And the same is true in, 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 in Hebrew. So the word here for covering is used just as a way in which uh, it, it way in which the sin is forgiven. It doesn't mean that God is somehow covering it up. That's not the idea. It com- it's used in this sense as a synonym for transgression, I mean for a forgiveness and not a cover-up. And then verse 2, he goes on to say, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now I want you to think about this context here a little bit. The context of the original context of Psalm 32 is the context where David, as a believer, has sinned. So it's dealing with his personal sin here, and the fact that blessed is the man to whom God does not reckon uh, iniquity, that is, in terms of his own personal sin, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But Paul is applying it in a little different way to Romans 4. He's not talking about forgiveness of a believer. He's talking about the imputation of righteousness. So when we go back to Romans Romans chapter 4, and we'll see he quotes the verse again in Romans chapter 5. But we go back to Romans chapter 4. What he's talking about is the fact that at that unbelievers do not have their personal sins imputed to them. There's two categories of, of sin for which we are uh, for we're condemned. We have Adam's original sin, which is the basis for our condemnation, and then we have personal sin. The focal focal point here is on personal sin, and that the one who is uh, blessed is the one who to whom God does not impute or credit their personal sin. He's not going to be judging them on that basis. Why? Because the sin has been paid for on the cross through the sacrifice. So in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. He's just quoting from the uh, Septuagint. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord uh, shall not impute sin. Then in verses 9 through 12, 
He's going to develop this argument more going back to Abraham. He says in verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon him? See, that tells us that the focal point, even though Psalm 32 uh, 2 uses the word for uh, for imputation or reckoning, uh, the focal point is really on blessedness. Verse 6, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness. See, it's the one who receives grace. That's what blessing is, the one who has experienced the undeserved favor of God. That's his whole argument here is that justification comes from, doesn't come from something we deserve, but is the undeserved favor of God. So verse 6 says David describes the blessedness of the man, what do we, how does verse 7 begin? Blessed are those. How does verse 8 begin? Blessed is the man. What is verse 9? How does verse 9 begin? Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcision alone? So what's he talking about? What's the word that he's used four times in three verses or four verses? Blessing. Unmerited favor. So does this unmerited favor come upon circumcised, those who've done something only, or upon the uncircumcised also? He makes his point. Four, here he introduces another argument. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. So he's reminding them of, of the point that he has made. Verse 10, how then was it accounted? How was it imputed? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? While he's circumcised. Circumcision doesn't come in until Genesis 17. While he was circumcised. Uh, not while, um, uh, not after he was circumcised. Verse 11, he says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a post salvation sign of what had already taken place and was a sign not of his justification, but of the covenant that God uh, made with him in, re- in relation to his seed. So verse, uh, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So his, his argument here, he's bringing it to a conclusion, what he started back in the middle of verse uh, of chapter 2, rather, that are, are only the Jews who are circumcised justified? No, because there are those who are circumcised who are less righteous than those who are uncircumcised. So is God going to uh, justify the one who is less righteous uh, because he hasn't been circumcised? No, the issue is circumcision, whether he's saved uh, the issue is faith, whether he is circumcised or not, or obedient to the law or not. That was the argument of the end of chapter 2. So in verse 11, he says, He receives the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while, un- while uncircumcised. And then in verse 12, he says, And the father of circumcision to those, that is, Abram, because he's the first, he's the father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, that would be the Jews who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who also walk in the steps of faith, that is, who follow Abraham in faith, trusting God for the for righteousness, 
which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So his point in verses 9 through 12, his application is that since Abraham is, is justified long before he's circumcised, circumcision is a consequence and a sign of something that's already taken place. What, caught, what is the basis for, for justification has nothing to do with circumcision, has nothing to do with the Mosaic law. It has to do with simply believing in, in the promise of God and only on the basis of believing the promise of God. And so we'll stop there tonight and we'll come back uh, next Thursday night to deal with the uh, promise that the promise was given to Abraham not on the basis of works, but also on the basis of faith. And this will take us through a good part of the rest of the chapter. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, that we might just be encouraged that it's all based on grace. Everything is goes back to your unmerited favor toward us, that you have provided us with a salvation that that we could never earn, we could never deserve it. Uh, to really understand the issues of salvation uh, means that we have to understand that we can't do anything to earn it or deserve it, but it is a, a free gift, and we, but we do need to accept it by simply trusting in you. And so we're thankful that we have a salvation based not on who we are or what we do, but on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.